Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. We come to a very crucial point in Matthew's gospel. There's a very significant change that occurs in Jesus' ministry here towards his disciples. Prior to this point, Jesus has not said anything about the cross, the way he mentions it here in this chapter. As far as the disciples are aware, they would continue to follow Jesus because they were called to follow Jesus. And so they're thinking, we're going to follow Jesus until, right, he assumes his rightful place on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And he would begin his glorious rule as the king of the Jews, for that is who he is. He is the king of the Jews. But once we come to verse 21, specifically, look with me, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21 we read that Jesus shares some startling news with them. And he, Matthew writes, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and friends not to reign, but to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. So Christ journey to the cross begins to take center stage in the rest of this gospel. And as that happened, Jesus is more and more concerned for his disciple. He wants to instruct them and he wants to protect them from something. Up until this point in the first 15 chapters, we saw Christ say, beware three times. This warning to, to watch out, to beware, three times to his disciples in chapter 6, in chapter 7, and in chapter 10. And as we will soon see, this warning to beware is given three times in these verses, in these opening verses of chapter uh, 16. Friends, Jesus is concerned and he wants to warn his disciples and he wants to warn us also by extension about something he sees a definite threat. He, he sees this definite danger. And when we consider this threat, it wasn't a threat of persecution. It wasn't a threat of some economic struggle. It wasn't a threat of political instability or just this changing culture that they and we live in. It was about the blindness of the human heart to see its sinfulness and the death of Jesus Christ as its only cure. The threat and the danger that we're all susceptible to is not to see ourselves in light of Scripture and not to see Jesus as he portrays himself to be. That is the ultimate danger. That is the ultimate threat. And that is what we want to look at in the first 12 verses of chapter 16. Let's open and let's read together, beginning with verse 1, Matthew chapter 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you? You know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the times. 
An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and the sign will not be given it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and went away. And the disciples came to the other side of the sea, but they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. They began to discuss this among themselves, saying, He said that because we did not bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Do you not yet understand or or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? Or the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many baskets full you picked up? How is it? that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread. But beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Very interesting passage here before us. It is in some sense unlike that which came before, but in some sense, it is deja vu all over again, right? As we faced and saw last time, at least this opening, um, these opening verses, they tell us something that already happened in chapter 12, as we will see. Two scenes are presented to us, one with the Pharisees and scribes and the other one with Jesus or, and, and the disciples. And we want to, to look at two things here. Number one is, be aware of the signs, be aware of the signs. And second, we will look in verse 5 through 12, be weary of self-righteousness. And this is the overall theme that I want to present to you as we unpack these verses. And as we take these truths in our hearts home and we meditate on them throughout the week, here's what I want us to see and to really consider here this morning. Beware of your self-righteousness, which blinds you to your ongoing need of Jesus. Beware of your self-righteousness, which blinds you to your ongoing need of Jesus. In verses 1 and 4, we have here this confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Number one, be aware of the signs. You know, last couple of weeks where we're in the gospel of, or, uh, of Matthew here, we've seen Jesus doing outreach ministry in this Gentile, in this foreign land, you can call it, right? In this Gentile region. And after feeding the 4,000, Jesus, we are told here in verse 39, he gets into the boat with his disciples and he crosses over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So they are right back in this Jewish territory. We're not exactly sure where this region of Magadan is. Uh, Nobody really seems to pinpoint exactly where it's at, but more than likely they're back in this Jewish territory. And what do you know? Verse one, as soon as he gets back, he encounters immediate opposition. Remember, we're dealing with in these chapters here, uh, chapters 14, 15, and 16, the opposition to the kingdom opposition to the kingdom. And once again, as soon as he steps foot on his territory, somebody shows up. 
he immediately encounters opposition. Now, Matthew already told us a lot about the Pharisees, and he has mentioned the Pharisees as a separate group. He has grouped the Pharisees with the scribes, so oftentimes we've read before scribes and Pharisees, right? But this is the first time here where Matthew, he groups the two groups Uh, Pharisees and Sadducees. And for many, many reasons, this is an unusual pairing. You really don't see these groups together ever. Not only did these two groups have nothing in common, they were really opposites of one another. And they, in in, in a very real sense, they hated one another. Now we know of the Pharisees, we've met them before, we discussed the Pharisees, but as to just summarize who they were, they were, you could probably labor them, label them as this holiness movement, okay? They were the separatists. They were the conservative group. Uh, in fact, the Pharisee, the, the word Pharisee, comes from the Hebrew word, which means to separate. They were separatists. This group thought that the way they were going to Uh, purchase God's blessing, the way they were going to receive um, his blessing and ultimately the kingdom is through just strict obedience to the law of Moses and in addition to this oral tradition. They developed this rigid and, and burdensome set of strict application to the letter of the law. And we've seen this already in chapter 15, right? Washing where they come to Jesus, it's like, what is wrong with your disciples? How come they don't do what we do? Because by doing what we do, this is how we get brownie points with God. They thought that through these means, they would secure God's blessing. That was the Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees, they're, they're completely different. They're of a different mindset. Although they too were a religious group, but they were politically connected with the Romans who, who ruled that land. They were liberals of their day and they they didn't really care about the oral traditions they would compromise the religious aspects and everything else just so that they would get some kind of credit and get more political power so they're very they they were very much politically oriented than religiously oriented they they would blend Judaism with the culture of the Roman world and that is why they would be propped up the Sadducees would be propped up by the Romans, and they were the ones who would occupy the, the ranks of the high priest. Not the Pharisees, but the Sadducees, because they were in cahoots with, with the Romans. So the Pharisees, being heavenly-minded, they're seeking God's approval by the law. Strict legalism and, and ceremonialism. We've seen that before, and we'll review that in just a few minutes. They believe that access to heaven, right, is a matter of their own goodness, their own righteousness. They, they, they really worked up this elaborate system of works. And, and, and in some sense, they very much despise the concept of grace and mercy. And, and we've seen that already in chapters 8 and chapters 9. Every time Jesus would be merciful to sinners who were looking, who were flocking to him to, to receive some, something good from Jesus, they would always look at that. Right, And they would always mock that as if this kind of concept of righteousness and mercy was beyond them. No, you have to earn it. If you don't have what it takes, then you cannot be in. This is the system and this is the message that they taught anyone who wanted to join their group and they wanted to join their sect. The Sadducees, 
they were worldly minded. They, they, they saw their obedience, right, or the reward for God's obedience in terms of just material possession or, or worldly power. That's why they were very much politically oriented, right? They didn't care about the religious stuff necessarily. It was all about here. It was all about now, earthly and temporal. In fact, they, they really didn't even believe in the afterlife. They didn't believe in resurrection. All that stuff was like, man, forget it. That's not what we're after. We're after now, today. And, and, and they're so different, and yet they're together. They are so alike. It's like today, if you were to, I don't know, pass a bill in the Congress, and you would have the Democrats and the Republicans team up 100%, and they would all vote for that bill. Do you ever see that happening? It, it was an anomaly. This doesn't happen, and yet they're together. They're the same. They join forces to become one. In fact, the way Matthew writes this, he says, the Pharisees and Sadducees. He doesn't even say the Pharisees and the Sadducees as if they're just two groups. They're kind of standing on the opposite sides and they're going after Jesus. No, there's no distinction between them. They all gather together as one group. Why? Because at this point they have only one enemy and that is Jesus Christ. One enemy. Everything and everyone gathers together to oppose the one who came to speak the truth, the one who is the truth. Almost reminds me as I was reading this of Psalm chapter two, Psalm two, right? Where, where the psalmist cries out, why are the nations in an uproar and the people devise a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rules take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, literally against his Christ, against the Messiah. And so they come together and look at the demand. In verse 1, they come and testing Jesus. They asked him to give them a sign. Give us a sign from heaven. This is the second time that they request a sign. Back in Matthew chapter 12, 38, they did the same thing. Now, just to, to appreciate what an absurd request this was, we need to zoom out, right, from verse 1 kind of go back a little bit and see what just took place leading up to this request for a sign. Jesus had just performed wonderful miracles, wonderful signs, right? He, he fed multitude of people, 5,000 in chapter 14 of men plus women and children. And then in chapter 15 here, he feeds 4,000 men plus women and children. You know, it's hard sometimes to, I don't know, rank the miracles of Christ. Like what, what is his greatest miracle? I don't know. It's hard. They're all great. They're all great. But if you were to think about these two miracles, right? They were probably the greatest in the sense of their outreach, in the sense of their publicity or validity. There were, there were thousands of people who could come and attest to it. You know what? I ate of that bread and I ate of that bread and I was there and I saw what Jesus did. There's no denying what he had performed. I only saw five fish or five loaves of bread, right? And look what happened. He multiplied and we all ate. And I, I saw the baskets that were gathered afterwards. They can all testify. 
In addition to these miracles, beginning specifically from chapter 8 all the way to this point here in chapter 16, Jesus had been performing sign after sign, miracle after miracles, many of which were done right in front of the Pharisees. And these miracles, they all testified to one thing, that this man who is performing these miracles is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. Perhaps notice what, what they're saying here uh, in verse 1. Um, they're implying that they've seen a lot of signs, but they want a major sign. Just one more. Because look what in, in chapter 14 they say, show us a sign. Here they add something to it, and, and they ask him to show them a sign from heaven. We need something massive. We need something that Everyone will see something in the sky, perhaps. Maybe they're thinking of, they know the scripture, right? Maybe they're thinking of Joshua's sign, you know, when he prayed to the Lord in in Joshua 10 so that the sun stopped and they would have enough time to wipe out all the enemies. Maybe maybe that's what they're thinking. If you could show us that, then we'll be right on our knees, all of us, Pharisees, Sadducees, and everybody else around. Or, or they're, maybe they're thinking about the Elijah, Elijah sign, right? Remember Elijah in 1 Kings 18, he goes up and he prays to the Lord and the Lord sends fire from heaven and it consumes the sacrifice and everything on the altar and the altar itself. Maybe that's what they're thinking. We need a sign that we might believe that you are who you say you are. But friends, their goal was in faith. Their goal was in faith. They weren't itching to walk by faith. They're not asking, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Give me something more. Right? Because that's the essence of faith. You affirm what you do not see. Because look what he says. Matthew says that they came testing Jesus. They didn't come to be built up in faith. They came to test. And that's exactly the same word that is used of the devil in, in Matthew chapter 4, where he comes to test Jesus. So in some sense, these Pharisees and Sadducees, they almost continued to continue the ministry of Satan himself. They came to test. They came to tempt with this desire to make Jesus look bad in front of others, to embarrass him maybe, to shame him, like, aha, he can't perform what he claims to have power to do. Sort of hoping to disprove him in front of the crowds. They're not concerned about their own spiritual well-being because as far as they stand, friends, they are good before the Lord. They don't need a savior. They don't need this Messiah. They only need Messiah to establish the kingdom so that they can reign. It's the only good thing that their Messiah would come to do. So Jesus here responds and man, that's a stinger of a response. Look what he says in verse two. When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be a storm today for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but cannot discern the signs of the time. What he tells them is, listen, you are great in recognizing the weather. You guys are not stupid. You're great at it. When the sky is red in the evening, you say, 
It'll be fair weather at night. No rain is coming. When the same thing happens in the morning, then you say, hey, the storm is coming. There's a scientific explanation to why this is the case. And I can send you some articles. We're not going to get into scientific facts here. But he says, listen, you are great at, at discovering natural occurrences. You can calculate these things. But there's a great irony in this. Remember, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He's speaking to the religious elites. He is speaking to the pastors and teachers of the nation. They're popes. And here's what he is saying. Guys, you made good weathermen, but you are lousy theologians. You need to call Channel 10 News and get hired to do their 10 p.m. weather updates. You'll be great at that. But when it comes to handling the word, when it comes to explaining the truth, you guys are terrible. In fact, deadly. You guys are not dumb. They weren't dumb. No, they were smart enough to discern signs that predicted the weather. But not, he says, cannot discern the signs of the times. And, And oftentimes we read these, and even if you Google the signs of the times, you will find so many articles, even books published on on eschatology, you know, of things that that look forward. What are the signs? And are we living in the last days? You know, all of this, you know, conversation and, and all of these details. Here, he has, he's not saying anything about the future. He's not concerned about the future. Jesus is focused on right now. He's saying, you can look at the sky and you can determine the weather. But you look at what's going on here, you can look at me, and you are lost completely. Because my standing here before you is the greatest sign to you. It's almost like they were asking, you know, here is Jesus shining as this bright sun before them, as the greatest sign. And they're asking for candlelight. Can you just give us something else so that we may see the brightness of the sun? They're not asking to believe. That's why Jesus earlier on says that these are blind guides leading the blind. They're no good because they can't determine the intent of the word of God. What were they blinded to? Or more accurately, who were they blinded to? Jesus. Jesus Christ. They wanted a sign from heaven, yet they failed to see that he, Jesus, was the sign from heaven. I will recall what um, Luke writes in Luke chapter 2, verse 34, where Simeon, he sees Jesus, and he says this, and Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. The context is that they are currently missing the signs that they have been given over and over and over again. They are missing the messianic signs that Jesus has been doing from the beginning of his ministry. His teaching, his healing, all these other miracles, they should have seen them and they should have 
believe them and they should have acknowledged that this is the one who was promised in the Old Testament. They should have made the con uh, right conclusion. Aha, this is Jesus. This is the Messiah. We're not sure what he's up to. Like the disciples, we will see. They're not sure, but we're going to follow him. And we're going to submit to him. And we're going to walk by faith and see where he leads us. And once again, Jesus tells them what he already told them in 1240. This evil and adulterous generation, they're not going to get a sign right now, but they will get one more sign, the sign of Jonah. Evil and adulterous. We've, we've seen this before. They are evil. They are evil because they do not believe in Christ. They are adulterous because they pretend to be about his business. They pretend to be about God's business. They pretend to be righteous, yet their hearts do not belong to Jesus. And so he says, I'll give you one sign. Not now, but when I determine it's time to give the sign. And that sign will be the sign of Jonah, which refers to his death and resurrection on the third day. William Hendrickson, he says this, what a sign this death and resurrection would be for the Pharisees who were concerned, who were constantly planning Jesus's death with no fear that he would ever be able to conquer death. They thought that was it. They're done. And what a sign it was for the Sadducees who did not even believe in resurrection. I'll give you a sign. Beloved, Jesus performed signs out of compassion to those in need to minister mercy and to demonstrate his redemptive ministry. He came to the sick, as we've seen over and over and over again, but he only came to the sick who knew they were sick. And he gave them grace. He did not perform miracles for the self-righteous or the self-sufficient. He won't work to satisfy men's pride. He won't do their bidding. He came to do the Father's will. They did not perceive the significance of his coming. The king was in their midst. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, yet they are blind, and they are blinded by their own goodness. That's the point. Blinded by their own self-righteousness. So the demand for us church is to be aware of the signs. Be aware of the right signs. Be aware of what God is showing us here in his word. Truth that reveal to us Jesus Christ and also truths that reveal ourselves in light of scripture. Think about the, this so far from chapter 8 all the way to 15, what do all these signs reveal about Jesus? Well, they reveal to us that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. What does the resurrection reveal to us? It's not enough to just affirm and say, well, Jesus is who he says he is and walk away. No, for us who have lived or who, who know the end of the book of Matthew, right? The gospel of Matthew. We know that there is resurrection. We know that he died and resurrected on the third day. What does that mean for us now who have seen this sign? Well, his resurrection proves that he is innocent. He was an innocent sacrifice, but he died. Why did he die? Well, 
Because he didn't die for himself, he died for us. You see, we have to continue to dig and ask the right questions in order to arrive at the proper conclusion. If we just affirm that Jesus died and that he resurrected, well, great. But we have to ask the question, why? Who was it for? It was for us. It was written here, right, in their Bible 700 years before. And if they were careful to read their Bibles correctly, they would have read Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of all of us to fall on him. That was recorded 700 years before arrival of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees were blinded to the signs and the question is, are you, am I? Do you see yourself in need of a savior constantly today? Do you rejoice in the fact that you have a savior? Listen, Jesus did not come to secure glory for himself. Throughout the gospel of John, he says, Father, I have glory with you before the world began. It's not what he was after. And everywhere throughout the gospel, he is testifying and he says, I came to save sinners. I came to seek and to save that which is lost. And only sinners who are aware of their plight can benefit from Christ's work. All other perish. Because in John 8, 24, he says, therefore, I say to you, you will die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And beloved, no one will see the true person of Jesus Christ on their own unless the Father reveals it to you. This whole theme of not understanding, this whole theme of blindness is everywhere here in this chapter. And it goes to emphasize this, that only the Father can reveal the identity and the significance of Christ. Because he says so in verse 17 to Peter, flesh and blood did not reveal to you this, but the Father who is in heaven. Be aware of the signs. I want you to see the second scene here, verses 5 through 12. And in this scene, Jesus is warning to his disciples, and it could be summarized very straightforward like this, be weary of self-righteousness. Be weary of self-righteousness. At the end of verse 4, he leaves the Pharisees and Sadducees. He is being opposed, and then what he usually does, he turns around and he leaves this region. He gets into a boat with his disciples. He goes to the other side of the sea. And what do you know? The disciples forget to bring bread. And it's really interesting, right? Matthew, this, this theme of bread is everywhere here. Bread, bread, bread. Right? Feeding of 5,000, bread. There's this Seraphonician woman who says, yeah, but even the crumbs, you know, she's talking about, Jesus is saying, it's not good to take bread from children and throw it to dogs. And she's thinking, well, but yeah, but even they benefit from some crumbs. And, and then he goes and he feeds again with bread, 4,000. And here are these disciples who forget, who forget this or to take bread. It's everywhere. And so having forgotten their bread, 
That's what's on their mind. But Jesus, still fresh from his conversation with the Pharisees and Sadducees, he warns them, his disciples, about the danger of these leaders. Remember, remember the people here in general, they held these religious leaders in, in high esteem. They respected them. And in some sense, I think it's, it may be accurate to conclude that even, even disciples to some extent revered Pharisees and Sadducees. Everybody were, did that in the whole you know, nation. They were taught by them, taught to revere them, to look up to them. Think about this. Jesus tells them that, uh, uh, look at verse 12. The disciples come, verse 12 of chapter 15, the disciples come and say to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended? Why would they care if they did not hold the Pharisees to some kind of standard? You can't offend them. You can't offend that position. Jesus knows that they have the potential to infect everybody. And so he comes to his disciples and he warns them to watch out, to beware. And he says, beware of leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And immediately, disciples, they huddle up. They look over their shoulder and they're like, he must be talking. He must be referring to this bread. Dummies, we forgot bread. What are we going to do without bread? And so he's probably saying that we should not turn around and, and buy bread from Pharisees and Sadducees. Don't take their bread. Leavened bread makes total sense. But Jesus, aware of this, he rebukes them. He rebuked the Pharisees and Sadducees just now. Look, same thing is happening here. He rebukes his disciples. The disciples, they're showing signs of dullness and blindness similar to the Pharisees and Sadducees. They completely miss the point of Jesus' warning. He tells them that the reason they misunderstood what he said is because of their lack of faith. He says, you men of little faith, verse 8. You men of little faith. First, Jesus reminds them of the two great miracles he had just performed. And in essence, he says this, do you think that I'm getting upset at you for forgetting bread? Just think about what happened earlier on and a few months ago. Look what happened. If we need bread, I can make bread. If we need bread, I, if you're with me, then you are taken care of, is what he says here. But second, and more importantly, Jesus says in verse 11, I'm not even talking about real bread here. You completely missed the point. Jesus wasn't talking about physical bread. In fact, in all of these prior instances of multiplying bread and feeding people, multitude, all these instances, they were intended to teach that Jesus will satisfy not our physical hunger, but something greater. The, the physical manifestation was meant to teach a spiritual reality. It wasn't just for their hunger. If that's what we walk away with, then we completely miss the point. Friends, Jesus, here's an application point that I think is good to take away. 
here, Jesus did not come to satisfy our every desire. He did not come to fulfill our every dream. You know, sometimes I think we, we say that if you have Jesus, then he, Jesus will satisfy all of your dreams. He will be your satisfaction for everything that you ever longed for. He did not come to fulfill all of our dreams. What did he come to do? What did he come to do? He came to suffer. And he came to deal with our number one problem. Remember what he said to his disciples. You're following me, that's great. But when you follow me, you're not going to live your best life now. You're going to suffer. You're going to be hated. Why? Because of me. You want to follow me? Well, then get ready to suffer. Get ready to be hated. And in fact, many of you here are going to die for following me. That's not living your best life. That's not Jesus satisfying your every desire. All of these things were meant to point to Christ bringing us life, eternal life, and eternal security in light of our damning sin. Only Christ can feed us with food that will last into eternity. Only Christ can give us a drink, right, that he tells the woman at the well where you will never thirst again. And here again, by speaking of leaven, he was talking about the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees, which is deadly when it spreads. I came here to satisfy your greatest need, and that is to rescue you from God, from the wrath. And I'm here for it. This is your biggest problem. What was the teaching? Look at verse 12. And they understood that he did not say to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What was this teaching? What specifically did Jesus have in mind? And, and it's interesting when you read or listen to different sermons, read interpretations, you know, there, there are all kinds of, you know, you read five different commentaries and you'll probably get five different answers for what specifically this teaching is about. But I think if you look at the Pharisees and Sadducees, one fundamental trait that both of these groups shared was their self-righteousness. The Pharisees who were the legalists thought that they can earn whatever it is that God required by their obedience and striving. I just got to do more. I got to add a little more to the law so that I can demonstrate that I am good, that I am pleasing to God. The Sadducees, they didn't think that they needed to earn anything because they were good as is. Both groups were proud. Both groups were arrogant. And therefore, they were blinded to see their need for Christ. We've seen that the Pharisees, they prided themselves on avoiding outward sin. Like they, they didn't want to mess with the sinners. Why would I even step in the Gentile territory? They're pigs. They're dogs. Now I'm clean. And they're looking at Jesus. Why is he hanging around with all these sinners and prostitutes? We're not. He is. He must be also unclean. Outward sin. But they refuse to look inside themselves and to acknowledge that man we are wretched sinners. That's why Jesus would later call them whitewashed tombs. Beautiful on the outside, when you open it up, when you open up this casket, right, they're just full of dead men's bones. Jesus knew that in spite of their obsession with outward perfection, they inwardly were corrupt and they needed grace. They needed his sacrifice. And if you trace Matthew's presentation of the Pharisees, you will see 
this clearly. Matthew 5.10, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. You need better righteousness. They claim to be righteous, but I'm telling you, whatever it is that they're doing, you better show up with a greater righteousness than theirs. Nothing else will satisfy holy demand. And that's why later on in verse 44 of chapter 5, 48 of chapter 5, he says, therefore, you are to be perfect. In fact, the kind of righteousness that I require is perfection, as your heavenly father is perfect. And then he will go on and illustrate in in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, like chapter 6, verse 1, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by man. Outward appearance, spotlight righteousness. They love to draw attention to themselves. In chapter 6, verse 5, when you pray, you are not to be like hypocrites. That's them. You are not to be like hypocrites. Turn back with me to chapter 9 of Matthew and read, beginning with verse Uh, 11 when the Pharisees saw this they said to his disciple why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners but when Jesus heard this he says it is not those who are healthy who need a physician but those who are sick but go and learn what it means I desire compassion and not sacrifice for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners you think you're righteous I'm not for you but they think they're sinners and that's a perfect match Because I'm a great savior. I'm attracted to those who see their need for me. You don't. So I'll leave you alone. And you will die in your sins. He would later say in 23 verse 13. But woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites. Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves. nor Nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. In other words, what he is saying is the teaching and your way of life that you present to others, it's not going to get you in. But you continue to jam this down people's throats. And for that, you will be judged. Because that's not the way to get into the kingdom. The king is here, and he's providing you a way. He's demonstrating you to you how you can get in. Beware of self-righteousness. The self tacked onto righteousness is the problem. When you start justifying yourself, you get into real trouble. It is hard to see and even harder to admit, friends, that we are often like the Pharisees. Certainly, we're like the disciples. They, too, don't understand. In fact, three times he says, do you not understand? Why do you not yet understand? As far as they're concerned, right, they're thinking Jesus' ministry will advance and he will usher in the kingdom. And and the death is not even on their radar. What death? We're following the king. That's why Peter, who, who just confessed Jesus as Lord in chapter 16, in 22, rebukes Jesus for even thinking about death. Forbid it, Lord. What death? You see, the disciples don't really realize at this point that they too need a substitutionary atonement. They too need their Lord to go up on the cross first, cross before the crown. And that's why Jesus is quick to warn them. Don't listen to the Pharisees. Don't hang around people who think that they can achieve what God requires without his help. No one can. No one does. 
That's why Paul later on says there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. And that is a great commentary on chapter 16. No one is righteous. No one understands. Not the Pharisees and Sadducees. Not the disciples. Later on in Romans chapter 10, Paul would say this about the Jews. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them. For their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God. But not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For in Christ, for Christ rather, is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. You got Jesus, you got access. But you need to know that you are a sinner condemned to hell before you cry out to the Lord. And that awareness comes when the spirit works. If you try to live according to the law to gain God's approval, Paul says in Galatians 5, 2, behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, that means if you just try to do things by the works, Christ will be of no benefit to you. It's either all of Christ or none of Christ. Christ is either your justification, your sanctification, your glorification, your entire salvation is Christ or none of it. So watch out, he says. Be on the alert, beloved. Friends, as we close, I think we're all tempted so often to think more of ourselves and less of Jesus. Even as believers, we, this awareness that we're sinners in great need of a Savior, it sort of wears off over time and that is why we need passages like these to remind us we need the gospel preached over and over and over again we stand before god friends this very minute dressed in his righteousness we are accepted today we can stand together and we can sing these great songs that proclaim that we are saved because of the substitutionary death of jesus christ no amount of personal righteousness or self-improvement, even as believers, it affords us any more acceptance or any more blessing before God. None of that counts. Nothing pleases the Father as much as when we, when we come humbly before him and, and we beat our chest like the publican recorded in Luke 18 and we cry out, God, God, be merciful to me, sinner. Because he says later, right, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And, and friends, here's the, the great news and comfort to us that Jesus never turned anyone away who came genuinely seeking help. Never. Always came in. Why? Because he's the only one who can answer. He's the only answer to our greatest problem. And so let this build your faith this morning that you are accepted not because of your righteousness, but because of Christ. And beware when this sense creeps in, when this desire to, to sort of improve and this desire that, and these thoughts that you are now accepted because of you. You are never accepted because of you. It's always because of another. 
And that is a great comfort to us. And it gives us assurance, right? Because it's not found in us. It's found in someone outside of us. And that is why we look to Christ. We look to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that there is Christ and his life and his death and resurrection. And it is accredited to us. It is imputed, his righteousness that he earned is, is giving, it is counted to us as righteousness so that you can now stand next to us and, and we don't have to fear. And so we can sing now why this fear and unbelief, right, has not the Father put to grief his only Son, and that is why we have this boldness. Oh, help us to see constantly that we are wretched and that Jesus is righteous. And cling to him. Increase our faith in Jesus this morning for your glory and our good. Amen.